Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive at the RSA, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk today to our distinguished guest, Anne-Marie Slaughter. Anne-Marie is the CEO of New America, the think tank, and Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. Previously, Anne-Marie was the first woman to become Director of Policy Planning for the US Department of State, serving under President Barack Obama. And she's written and edited eight books and numerous articles on topics including foreign policy, international law, security strategy, global governance, gender, and more recently, the implications of the COVID uh, pandemic. Anne-Marie, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, and it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you. So um, I have to start by asking you what's going on in uh, America. I mean, you know, it's been a tumultuous era for America. And every time you think things can't get kind of more crazy, they become more crazy and in some ways more uh, tragic. So you've had both the COVID crisis and then more recently the ramifications um, of the murder of George Floyd. So let's start first with uh, coronavirus. Um, uh, what's your sense of where America is in relation to this? Because from the outside, it almost looks as though the country has kind of accepted a thousand or so people uh, dying every day as, you know, the price that has to be paid for trying to have return to normality. Well, of course, when we talk about America in that context, it it differs so radically state by state. I mean, my own state in New Jersey, uh, where we've had a very high number of, of cases and of deaths, uh, there's tremendous precautions. Uh, and I think in, in New York as well, in other states, there's been a very low incidence, really low. So for those folks, the economic shutdown has been all economic pain, and they really don't understand why. And then in other places, it's political. Uh, which is the gr- one of the greatest tragedies of, of politicizing a pandemic, uh, really something that I think none of us would have would have believed. Uh, but I think on the acceptance part, you can't understand the COVID pandemic without understanding what many of us increasingly are coming to think of as a racism pandemic. Because the majority of people who are dying are African-American and Latinx. And for many people then in power, the white power structure, that is not touching them in the same way. That is not touching their constituents because we are so divided in so many ways. And so when we talk about accepting this huge number of deaths, and really there are people predicting another 100,000 coming, that sort of acceptance can't be understood without looking through the lens of both partisan politics, Republican versus Democrat, but also tragically racism and and division in the sense of of segregation, meaning that, that really the people who are dying are often not visible to, nor directly in interaction with many of the people in power. So I get, so what I'm hearing is that, is that rather than thinking, well, you had the COVID, ongoing COVID 
uh, crisis and the kind of bungling response of the federal government. And then you had George Floyd's death and the Black Lives Matter movement. What you're saying is actually we have to understand the relationship between these two things. Very much so. And indeed, uh, I will just say, because we've made this public, um, uh, Tyra Mariani, who's the president and COO of New America, wrote a statement to the staff. She's African-American just four days after George Floyd's murder. And it was before all the demonstrations. But for her, that death on top of the extraordinary disparity in COVID deaths were one and the same, that this is systemic racism. It is the kind of racism that allows really a, a, a black man to be murdered. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Uh, and looking at the camera as if he expected no repercussions because most people in his position have had no repercussions. And what many, many uh, African-Americans, Latinx Americans, Native Americans uh, have been understanding as we are dying. We are much more on the front lines. So they were much more likely to be deemed essential workers, whether that's healthcare workers or grocery stockers or folks in stores that had to stay open in various ways, that those two things are, are absolutely part of, I would say, a larger disease that is really eating away at the fabric of our society and our democracy. So we've done a lot of thinking uh, at the RSA, Amory, about the relationship between crisis and change. And, and we've looked historically and the, that relationship is of course contingent. Um, you know, the First World War gives rise to the horrors of the 30s and the 40s. The Second World War gives rise to decades which now, looking back from our perspective, look pretty magical in terms of rising living standards, productivity, relatively low inequality, relative political consensus. Or another example would be the AIDS epidemic, which was a terrible, terrible thing. But yet the momentum coming out of that, not only did it involve investing in treating the condition and leadership from the gay community, but also a transformation in mainstream attitudes to the LGBT community. Contrast that with 2007-8 financial crisis, where hopes were so high for change. And actually what we've had is more social polarisation, political populism, kind of more pessimism, actually. Now, when we look at this, we, 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 our suggestion is that there are kind of three things that tell you whether crisis is going to lead to long-term intentional change. The first is, was there capacity and demand for change before the crisis? Because change doesn't come from nowhere. Secondly, in the crisis, does that demand grow? And do you in certain ways see the future being prefigured in the way in which people respond to the crisis? And then thirdly, as you emerge from the crisis, and this is what I think went wrong in 2007-8, do you have the political coalitions and the practical policy ideas and social innovations ready to take advantage of people's openness to new ideas, their willingness maybe to make sacrifices, to pull together, to get things back on track? Now, kind of using that frame, let's start at the end, because one of the things that interests me very much about what's happened in America in the last couple of weeks is that it feels as though this outpouring of anger and solidarity about racism has been something which has brought in the kind of centre of American opinion. It's not just been about the progressive wing. And I'm interested, is that true? And, and why is that, do you think? 
I do think that's true. I, I think that uh, it has surprised many African-American leaders. Uh, it surprised pollsters, but you are seeing people across the United States and not just in the big cities. Uh, there are many, many, many demonstrations in small towns, often quite white small towns, but where Americans are saying this can't stand, this cannot be, and, and understanding that the sense of fear and insecurity that African Americans and Latinx Americans, again, uh, really black and brown Americans have uh, toward the police. Uh, as somebody, uh, I think Nicole Hannah-Jones said the other night on a, on a show that Oprah uh, put together, she said, it's not that we don't want policing. We want the policing that white people have meaning we want a sense of safety and that these are people who are protecting us. And I think the starkness of this moment and the fact that how many times does a black man or boy have to be murdered in front of people, you know, with, with videos, because this is not the first. Uh, and then everybody comes to the streets and then nothing happens. So I think there is a crystallization uh, that, uh, of of feeling and and recognition that there must be actual change that is creating political space. Uh, that said, we are not in a position to be able to act on that nationally. We may be after November, but right now the president is much more interested in turning this into a further wedge than he is using that moment to make change. So what you're going to see is change at the city level, where actually police funding is, uh, and the state level. And one hopes then a coalition, not only that, that elects Joe Biden, but much more importantly, I think, that, than that, a coalition that recognizes you can't just have change at the top. Because part of what happened in 2008, 2009 was we need really major change and we've elected Barack Obama and that'll do it. Well, no, <laughs> that was important. It was very important, but that's it's going to take so much more than that. So in, this, in, in relation to this issue about coalition building, a, a, a point that you made very powerfully in your book, The Idea That Is America in 2007, which I've since heard echoed by others, I think Francis Fukuyama interviewed last year, said something very similar, which is that the critical issue is that the progressives have got to take ownership of the founding values of America, liberty, democracy, equality, tolerance, faith, justice, rather than kind of dissing America, they need to say what we stand for are the core principles, the founding principles uh, of, our, of our country. How do you think that argument holds up where, where America is today? I think it's a hugely important argument. And I will say, I, I, I wrote that book in 2007, and New America, uh, our organization, is our mission is, is renewing the promise of America by holding the country to its highest ideals. And I think that is the frame you have to use because you have to essentially say, look, this is possible, but we've never achieved it. And you need that because you have to still have the container of America and the way many of us define patriotism, which is really 
to to hold our country to what we say we believe in, understanding that we and no country ever gets all the way way there. But it's been very interesting to me to go back to to Martin Luther King, to go back to Frederick Douglass, to go back to Abraham Lincoln. The the argument's the same, you know, that this is what the country promised, but it has not delivered. Uh, but we can get closer if we take that we take those commitments seriously. Uh, so I, I think it is, I, I've been very struck to see that coming from many African-American leaders as well as white leaders in a way that, that uh, actually Langston Hughes put it more brilliantly than ever in this just spectacular uh, poem about America where he says, uh, you know, the America that has, that has never been yet must be. So he's saying, you know, this is my America, but it's never been for me. And then he's saying, but but it can be uh, as long as we are we are willing to face with really radical honesty how far how how much we have betrayed those ideals in o- over time. One of the things that your answer opens up, I think, is is this question about the relationship between government and. Uh, citizens and, and kind of where change comes from and where the where progressivism comes from to an extent and one of the things that I've really noticed in this crisis is that the governments that have coped best have tended to be governments that have reasonably strong levels of trust with their citizens but also governments that devolve power actually they allow cities they allow the social sector to take the initiative um, and that you've written quite a bit about this I think in terms of understanding resilience um, in a kind of broader terms, in terms of how the broader mobilization uh, of society. Yes, exactly. And again, this goes back to your earlier question about the groundwork that has been laid, certainly since 2008, 2009, which was to say really even in 2012, 2013, Two things were evident. One, that a great deal in America was broken. I mean, I left sort of foreign policy work to do the work I'm doing now in 2013. Even under President Obama, you know, our educational system is so broken. Our infrastructure, we don't have decent health care at an affordable price. There were just so many things that clearly have to be reformed, reinvented, but equally important was that that was happening more at the local and state level than it was the national level. Obama was doing the best he could, but he was blocked by Congress. Uh, But even more, it's what you just said. At the local level, there's more trust and there's more pragmatism. It's, if you are a mayor, you cannot indulge in the same kind of polarization you can nationally because you've got to do things like pick up the trash and you know deliver basic services. And it's not to say that's all perfect by any means, but many, many observers, myself included, James Fallows, Deborah Fallows, lots of folks, Tom Friedman, going out across the country, we're seeing a different picture. And you're definitely seeing that now. You're also seeing, frankly, if you want to find leaders of color, they are far more evident among the mayors of the country than they are the governors, the senators, the members of Congress, or certainly the president. So I I, I find this 
really interesting this idea of 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 progressivism being about how you do things not just what you do and i remember uh trying unsuccessfully to persuade the labor leader before last before last ed miliband um i was asked to contribute to a speech i think i was probably asked on a list of 150 people and probably never even got through to ed but what i suggested was a passage in the speech where he would say look don't think that when we are elected we take power when we're elected we have the opportunity to create power but whether or not we create power depends on how we govern right that message is that one that you hear joe biden saying at all because he's a you know he's a kind of federal government kind of guy so do, do you have hopes that a biden administration will be one that realizes that possibly the most important role for federal government domestically is to provide the framework within which change can actually be generated at the kind of city level, for example. I I absolutely love that frame. I've never thought about it quite that way. Uh, We we don't take power, we create power depending on how we govern. I think that that is exactly right. Uh, And indeed, you know, they're, they're, People who've been writing Lenny Mendonca and, and Laura uh, Tyson about progressive federalism. So the federalism is typically on the right in in the United States. Progressive typically now means the left, but but really you bring those together. I hope that a President Biden would realize that. I am quite worried that the Democratic leaders. Uh, certainly President Biden, many of his staff, that that they are too anchored in 20th century visions of progressive change, right? They are thinking about a new version of the New Deal, but the New Deal was really top down, right? It's Franklin Roosevelt, one of the most powerful presidents we've ever had, you know, with, with a large amount of consensus at the national level, creating federal program after federal program, whereas I would now say federal programs have to be, as you just suggested, containers and catalysts for local energy. And that is essential because it's far more participatory. You're never going to get the number of people that you need to get engaged, much less the diversity of those people at the federal level. Uh, even in foreign policy, my own area, I'd like to see every major city in the country and some medium-sized ones with people in the mayor's offices who are, are tasked with foreign affairs, as many of our big cities uh, now have. So you need that kind of energy. You need that diversity. But that is also, and you put your finger on it, that's the only way we rebuild trust. Because the trust in the federal government is broken, and I well understand it. The trust in the police departments are broken, and but yet the human services of of local and a, a lesser extent, but still important state government is where you can actually talk to people, engage with people, run for office, and then and then establish a circle of trust as we actually start to deliver better service. And do you think, Amory, that that kind of principle of subsidiarity we might call it which is that in the end that national government federal government should see should measure its success in the in the degree to which it enables localities lower levels of government 
to be resilient and to be able to determine their own destiny. That, that a good national federal government is one that enables local choice and local resilience. That similarly, that's the same way we need to think about global governance. That the way to think about global governance is not that we want a single global parliament or even necessarily that we want a single global plan, but we want global institutions to be as strong as they need to be to enable nation states to be resilient and to be different in the ways that they want to be different. I do, although I will say in both the global frame and particularly the national frame, it is equally important that that national container, and then we'll move to the global container, be strong enough to to put guardrails around what what states and localities can do. Because, of course, I came of age still when federalism, states' rights, meant the freedom of Alabama to treat African Americans however it wanted. Uh, and similarly, globally, you know, if you if you're you're too enabling then 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 there's there are all sorts of problems so it is always this balance between the what the container actually is and what guardrails it puts up and then local energy and and change i think globally that is important i mean if you think right now with with the pandemic we needed uh, an even stronger world health organization one that was more trusted uh, it has not done badly, and indeed, uh, absent my own country, I think overall the WHO has been a, has been definitely uh, an advantage. But it's of course still very politicized, and that's the danger of many of our global organizations. So ideally, yes, you want global organizations that can provide a focal point that, in a crisis, can provide trusted information that can mobilize many, many actors, uh, at least with, to, to agree on common goals and, and particularly in cases where the science is critical, agree on a broad version of the science. And then within that, you want to enable nation states. But again, I'd go further than that. I think we need a global order where you have global hubs that involve states, international organizations, absolutely, but that actually reach directly to uh, civil society, to business, to philanthropy, uh, to uh, mayors and governors. Uh, so I would want, uh, I imagine a global order where you could have, you know, the mayor of the biggest cities in Africa uh, and Latin America working side by side with businesses and civil society and state, you know, national governments uh, and, and regional organizations. It's, it's a messy picture, but I don't see how we mobilize the energies and the resources we need to mobilize if we just think about traditional international organizations with nation states. And I, again, I don't think national governments they're essential, but they're not enough. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, a lesson we've learned a lot historically is that to try to create democratic institutions in the absence of civil society institutions doesn't, generally speaking, end very well, you know, as we've seen to a certain extent in in, in parts of Eastern Europe. So we have to build that kind of global civil society uh, to to uh, so that global institutions aren't cut off, as it were, and 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 to address the legitimacy uh, crisis that they they have. Yes, um, I often think if you imagine the global order as these 
big buildings, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN itself, these big, big buildings. What we need to do is kind of flatten that hierarchy and instead make them hubs of global networks. So you can imagine visually pushing them down and pushing them out. So they still are a center of authority and one hopes legitimacy, but their effectiveness is going to depend on their connections to civil society and commercial society. And can I, we have so many things we could talk about, but just, we've only got time for a couple more, but I, I want to ask you about China because, you know, the future of the world cannot be separated from one's approach to China and to China's policies and decisions. And obviously, uh, President Trump has cranked up the rhetoric around China. And this was happening before COVID and it's got worse now. And I know that Democrats, too, are very concerned about China. Um, what do you think American policy towards China should be, given that in a sense, if we don't engage China, we, we ain't going to solve problems like climate change. Yes, yes. And I fundamentally still believe there that engagement is far better than containment. Although if we remember uh, the way George Kennan originally imagined uh, containing Russia or the Soviet Union, it was a mix of both. And the engagement part got cut off. You know, his original article was, we must contain the Communist Party, but we must also engage Russians in all sorts of ways. And that disappeared. I think that is still a better frame for China, where you do make clear there are real, real uh, obstacles and, and sort of red lines on things that China will otherwise push to do. But I am. I think the the sort of prospect of a new Cold War that serves the interests of various domestic political groups in the United States and to some extent other other countries is disastrous for the globe as a whole. And I am worried about my own party. I think the Democrats are playing into the attractiveness of othering and blaming, and. It, also looking tough, right? Democrats on national security always want to be tough. and But this is really potentially disastrous for the most important issues we face. It's a question. If you think great power competition is the greatest threat the world faces right now, what is laying us low? It's pandemics and climate change. And those two things are deeply interconnected and they are interconnected with resource scarcity, water, food, which then leads to migration, which leads to more conflict. And we, as you just said, we cannot possibly solve that without engaging China. So I do, you know, I think it's both, but I think the idea that now we make China the enemy is, you know, it's like Game of Thrones, right? Let's fight with each other while winter is coming, except in this case, it's summer is coming. Amory, I can't let you go. And I know it's a slightly unfair question, but I'm sure uh, uh, our viewers will want to know your answer. Uh, we see President Trump's popularity now, he's 40% and he's been slipping pretty consistently. Uh, you can sense almost a bit of complacency growing up about what's going to happen uh, in November. What do you think is going to happen in November? And what do you think are the critical things that will determine that outcome? I mostly think that nobody in this country should assume they know. 
Uh, I am I <laughs> complacency is the worst possible thing. This is really the greatest challenge to my, to what the United States is supposed to stand for: democracy, justice, liberty, the rule of law that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, and it is it is weaponizing our division and using the the technologies of social media in the same way that strong men around the world do. And the United States has been far too complacent that that sort of thing can't happen here. But when I saw African-American protesters reaching, kneeling and reaching out to the National Guard, I thought, this looks like Tahrir Square. I remember when the Egyptians and the Egyptian army said, we're the fingers of one hand. We're not there, but we could be there. And I don't honestly think I shudder to think what would happen if we have four more years of this kind of politics. So I'm not making any predictions. Uh, I deeply believe that there's an opportunity to bring the country together, but it isn't just going to be by electing a Democrat. It, it will only be if we can elect somebody, a team of people who then take very, very seriously the need for not just four years of change, not just eight years of change, but really putting this country on, on the path of fundamental renewal around, again, holding to and trying to achieve the ideals uh, that our founders upheld, but fell short of even from the beginning. What fascinates me about your answer, Amory, is in a sense, the temptation is to fight an election on the slogan, at least we're not Trump. But it's got to be more than that, doesn't it? And it's interesting that in the last few days, Joe Biden seems to have found more of a voice, more passion uh, in his voice. Do you think, you know, if you were do being doing the political strategy, would you think in the end it's just about not being Trump? Or would you say, no, we need to develop some kind of high ground here? And what would that high ground be? I think we, so there's the diagnosing of the problem, which is not hard to do. There are many, but there's some very big ones. But I think you win on imagining the solutions. And, and But again, I don't think that, that, that uh, Joe Biden should say, here are all the solutions. I think he should say, this is a moment where we can collectively imagine a far better America and collectively figure out how to get there. So he can sketch it. And some of it is just so obvious. We need an entire infrastructure of care, right? That doesn't just mean health care and family leave and child care. That means really rethinking how we support the ability of Americans to care for one another, to invest in one another, to care for themselves. What that actually looks like should be a deeply participatory process. So again, I think he he has to, to lead us to ec an exercise of our collective moral imagination, but he has to do that in a way, to go back to our earlier conversation, that doesn't say, yep, elect me and the federal government's got the answers and I'll appoint a team of experts and we will design legislation. For one thing, there's no guarantee that he'll have a Congress that will pass it, even if he is elected. So he's got to think much more creatively about engaging the country. And I will say here, as we're running out of time, in 2026, it is America's 250th anniversary. 
And we will be on the cusp between a majority white country and a country that has no majority, a country of pluralities. If we're going to, going to advance the country, the, the ideals, the democracy that we are to that country, we have got to think much, much more broadly. And that's how, if I were he, I would be framing, yes, my election is critical, but my election is critical not just to get rid of something terrible, but to give us the energy and the, the space to imagine a different future. Well, Anne-Marie, it's been brilliant talking to you, although I'm, I have to say that you telling me about that as maybe if you're very old, because I remember the bicentenary. Uh, <laughs> thank you for taking uh, the time to talk to me and sharing your insights into what is a momentous era in the United States and very, very important times uh, ahead. To those of you watching, I recommend keeping up with New America, who are doing crucially important work under Anne-Marie's leadership, developing tools to respond to COVID-19 and drive change across vital areas, including race equality, education, economic opportunity, political participation and representation. Please do keep up with the RSA's channels for updates on further conversations, as well as fresh insights from our policy research teams and news from our growing global fellowship. Thank you again to Anne-Marie Sorsa for joining us. And thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.